Wow, what a deadline. I can't remember a trade deadline in recent history that even comes close to the chaos from this year. So welcome back to the NBA In-Depth podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about the major trades that took place, the implications on all parties involved, and of course, I'll sprinkle some personal opinions in as well. Let's get the monster deal right out of the way here. After Adrian Wojnarowski insisted that a deal was not being discussed, the Brooklyn Nets ultimately trade James Harden and Paul Millsap to the Philadelphia 76ers for Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, the 76ers unprotected 2022 first round pick with the option to defer it to 2023 and a 76ers top eight protected 2027 first rounder, which comes with multi-year protections that eventually convert to cash and multiple second rounders if forced comes to worse. From the 76ers perspective, you essentially traded Curry, Drummond, and two first rounders for James Harden. Uh, You weren't getting anything from Ben Simmons anyway, so 76ers fans probably owe Daryl Morey an apology, to be honest. His stubbornness and outright refusal to sell Ben Simmons for 75 cents on the dollar is what ultimately got him another star and reunited with James Harden. Right away, Harden's going to add some much-needed passing to this crew. The Sixers were one of the worst passing teams prior to this trade. So many times, Joel Embiid would have a hard time even getting the ball in certain post-up situations just because there's not really anyone on this Sixers team that excels at getting Embiid the ball in the post, whether that be throwing it to the wrong arm or what have you. Harden also provides some much-needed perimeter shot creation. Hopefully that means the end of these Tobias Harris mid-range post-ups, or at least in lower volume. I'd like to see Harden take a lot of the creation duties off of Tobias Harris, if at all possible. This probably makes their closing five look like James Harden, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey, maybe, and either Matisse Teibel or Danny Green. I might go with Danny Green just because it's really dangerous to have a one-way guy like Teibel on the floor in close playoff games, at least. But I mean, if, if Danny Green is obviously just getting killed on defense and he can't hit an open threes, then yeah, you might as well get Teibel in there. Um, I gotta say, though, I'm a little worried about Harden's ability to actually blow by guys in isolation. He's really lost that quick first step this season and basically needs a screen to create an advantage, which is kind of concerning, as Joel Embiid doesn't exactly love being a role man. That's not his style. Harden's finishing has also been a huge problem this year, down to 54% at the rim, well below league average, which is about 64, 65% this year. His three-point shooting is still hanging around 35% off the dribble, which is always going to be a useful weapon for Harden, but he's got to get comfortable taking more spot-ups as the second option next to Embiid. The Sixers are going to have real problems on offense if Embiid's posting up and Harden's just chilling out at the hash or even farther back like he would back in the Houston days. Harden also creates a lot of problems defensively here. He, as we know, he's a pylon on the perimeter and you basically have to switch all screens when he's out there. He's never getting through a screen. And the big problem here is that Philadelphia doesn't like to switch because of Embiid's ability to protect the rim. So that could cause some clashes there. We'll see how Doc Rivers handles that. Maybe Harden can rechannel some of that stout post defense to avoid just getting totally killed if him and Embiid do have to switch at times. Let's take a look at the bench here. 
So the Sixers are basically looking at Shake Milton, Furkan Korkmaz, Danny Green slash Matisse Teibel, George Nyang, and Paul Millsap now. That's extremely worrisome for a Doc Rivers team. That crew is going to get absolutely destroyed in Doc Rivers' all-bench lineup. So hopefully we see a fair bit of James Harden and Joel Embiid staggered minutes. That would be ideal. The other caveat here is the upcoming Harden extension. He just opted into that $47 million player option for the 22-23 season, but now he's eligible for a five-year $270 million extension on top of that. I would be adamantly against that if I'm Daryl Morey and would pretty much refuse to give that kind of deal to Harden. We've kind of watched him descend from a borderline top five player to a borderline top 20 player the past two seasons he'll be 33 years old this summer so hopefully both sides can come to a reasonable agreement and if not i mean we're basically going to be looking at harden at 36 37 years old making 50 million which will just be by far the worst contract in nba history i'm sure the sixers would like to avoid that situation Looking at it from the Nets perspective, it looks like they were more or less backed into a corner here from James Harden. Sean Marks had said previously they didn't want to deal Harden, but he made it clear he wanted out. Harden also probably made it clear that he would leave this summer anyway, so the Nets were basically forced into making this move for Ben Simmons. But I actually like the move here for Brooklyn, to be honest. Their two biggest holes on the roster were their lack of a real perimeter stopper and the lack of defensive rebounding. Theoretically, Ben Simmons and Andre Drummond fill those gaps nicely, though you can basically never play them on the floor together. They've both got to be in the dunker spot, basically, and you, you, you just can't have both Simmons and Drummond together on offense. Seth Curry provides some much-needed shooting and pick-and-roll play to this squad, something the Nets are especially going to need because of a certain part-time starting point guard. The closing five probably looks like Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Joe Harris, and either Bruce Brown or James Johnson can replace Kyrie in these games. Maybe they go with someone like LaMarcus Aldridge, though. He's had a couple awesome games offensively for them. The rest of the rotation includes Andre Drummond, Nick Claxton, Blake Griffin, and Patty Mills is kind of the main guys. One of these bigs are just going to have to start because that's way too many bigs to give minutes to off the bench. Hmm. I don't think this move particularly improves Brooklyn's championship equity, especially with Kyrie missing all of the home games, but it does avoid them from having to make that tough decision regarding James Harden's extension. I think it's actually likely that Ben Simmons is just a straight up better basketball player than Harden in as little as 12 months, basically, but definitely in two years. I think saying Simmons is better than Harden is probably pretty likely. So as a consolidation deal, I like this a lot for Brooklyn, just not sure it gives them a much better chance to win it all this season, the way the roster is constructed and with Kyrie's part-time availability. Yeah, I don't think there's a clear winner here for this trade, right now at least. That'll all depend on what happens in the playoffs, but I would probably pick Brooklyn to come out of this as the more favorable party once this is two to three years in the rear view, unless Philly just kind of surprises everyone and wins it all this year. Then in that case, whatever crazy contract you end up giving to Harden is probably worth it in the end. Oh boy. Next up, let's look at maybe the most shocking deal of the deadline here. The Indiana Pacers send DeMontis Sabonis, Justin Holiday, and Jeremy Lamb to the Sacramento Kings for Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, and Tristan Thompson. Whew. Okay. 
I understand as a team who's missed the playoffs for, is, is it 16 years now? I think it's 16. The prospect of the play-in tournament getting to that 10 seed suddenly becomes super, super enticing. But Tyrese Halliburton was looking like their best homegrown prospect since Peja Stojakovic in 99. So what's the goal here as Sacramento? How deep of a playoff push do you have to make in order for this move to be worth it? Because right now, even if De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis become this world-beating one-two punch on offense, if the Kings surge to the 10 seed, win back-to-back play-in games, then congratulations, you've earned the privilege of being cannon fodder for the Phoenix Suns in the first round. Oh, and you've also made your own draft pick significantly worse in the process as well. Does that result justify trading a 21-year-old Tyrese Halliburton, a guy who is averaging 16 points, 9 assists, shooting 40% from 3 since the calendar rolled over to 2022? I would say no, but obviously Monty McNair feels differently for the Kings. And this isn't to say Demonis Sabonis is a scrub. He's actually looked pretty damn awesome in the Kings back-to-back wins here. He's a clear all-star talent with some very serious defensive flaws as a big man, though. Justin Holiday and Jeremy Lamb are awesome ads for a win-now team. I just don't see Sacramento as a team talented enough to really be making win-now additions like that. I'm still having a really hard time even believing that Halliburton was available for trade, and the rest of the league kind of feels that same way. The Kings probably could have driven up a bidding war for Tyrese Halliburton, I would imagine, but by the sound of things, nobody, nobody around the league was even aware that Halliburton was on the table to begin with. Though, maybe that's our fault. Trading the one kid who everyone felt was basically untouchable is so painfully on brand for the Sacramento Kings at this point. I just strongly disagree with the Kings' obsession with the play-in tournament. Okay, let's shift over to the Pacers' perspective, though. I had a lot of conversations on Twitter and Instagram with Pacers fans when that trade first broke, and the general consensus I got was, man, I would have been happy with a couple decent first-round picks for Sabonis. So I'm sure you can imagine the excitement of these Pacers fans when they heard Tyrese Halliburton was their return for Sabonis, as they should be. At this point, I don't know if Halliburton is a future several-time All-Star, like a lot of media members suggest after this trade, but I do think there's obvious All-Star ups there with Halliburton. And the Pacers haven't really had a young guy like that since basically Paul George, I guess. Halliburton has looked great with the Pacers so far. I actually just watched him drop a Pacer season high 16 assists again in the loss to Minnesota there. So he's looked great so far in gold. I keep talking about this trade like it's the start of a rebuild for Indiana, which might not even be the case, actually. This is a very small market team, dead last in attendance this season. So I think the Pacers are going to want to see what they've got with Malcolm Brogdon, Tyrese Halliburton, TJ Warren, and Miles Turner moving forward. Buddy Heald is also a vessel they could use to upgrade the wing position this summer, or they could hold on to him if they choose, but he seems kind of redundant. So the tank is probably on for the rest of this season, but it seems like the Pacers are going to at least try to be competitive again next season. With Sabonis gone, they may actually be able to build a competent defense around Miles Turner now, and regardless of the direction they take as a franchise, Tyrese Halliburton is just a home run return for DeMontis Sabonis in a super, super small market like the Pacers. Indiana made some other moves at the deadline here as well, most notably sending Karis LeVert and their 2022 second rounder to Cleveland for Ricky Rubio's expiring contract. 
the Cavs lottery protected 2022 first rounder and multiple future second rounders. This opens up an additional 18 million in cap space here for the Pacers. It brings their total cap space to 44 million this summer before re-signing TJ Warren and a couple miscellaneous bench guys. Pretty nice return for a guy who's at best on a neutral contract relative to his value in Levert, obviously. I might even say it was a slight overpay for the Cavs, but they are in dire need of a guy exactly like Levert. They can't continue with Darius Garland as their sole ball handler. They really needed another guy who can get to the rim and make plays off the dribble. Now, Levert's not exactly a great shooter, so I don't know how good of a fit he'll be next to Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, and Isaac Okoro on offense. This move also gives Cleveland some flexibility with Colin Sexton this summer. They bring him back as a six man on a team friendly deal, maybe, or they can hope to find a real wing with a Sexton sign and trade as well. That's always an option. One more small move with the Pacers here. They traded Torrey Craig to Phoenix for Jalen Smith and what's likely to be the 60th pick in the upcoming 2022 draft. The Pacers seem pretty committed to Isaiah Jackson as their future center project, but it doesn't hurt to take a flyer in acquiring Jalen Smith. Smith's bird rights. Torrey Craig goes back to Phoenix again as maybe a fringe rotation player in the regular season, but he provides another quality wing defender if you need that niche matchup in the playoffs. All right, let's transition to the Portland Trailblazers who had a very busy deadline of salary shedding. I obviously just overestimated the value of their guys on the trade market this year. The first move made was Robert Covington and Norman Powell to the LA Clippers for Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, Keon Johnson, and the Detroit Pistons 2025 second round pick. Yikes. <laughs> This move shed $4 million in salary, and I guess they view Keon Johnson as a better asset than some of these weak first rounders out there, potentially. Obviously, an exceedingly negative return for two quality NBA players, really. The Clippers continue to rack up their luxury tax bill, but now they've acquired two additional players in their best peak playoff rotation. When healthy, the Clippers are looking at Reggie Jackson, Norman Powell, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard. Ivica Zubats, Robert Covington, Marcus Morris, Nicholas Batum, Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard. Then they've also got Brandon Boston and Amir Coffey kind of on the back burners here. That's some pretty sick wing depth for a team that can basically switch one to five in their more creative small ball lineups. Obviously, we're not going to see that this year. Kawhi and Paul George are likely out for the rest of the season, and now Norman Powell is out indefinitely with this. I can't remember if it was a foot fracture or just a reaction, and now they're sidelining him. But yeah, the Clippers are not going to be making any noise in the 2022 playoffs. The next big domino to fall in Portland was the trade that saw CJ McCollum, Larry Nance Jr., and Tony Snell traded to the New Orleans Pelicans for Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and Tomas Sadoransky's expiring contract, and a future Pelicans first and second rounder. The Pelicans get a second on-ball creator and a potential backup small ball stretch five-ish option next to Zion Williamson. For the Pelicans' sake, I hope Zion is healthy and this configuration of McCollum, Ingram, and Valanciunas ultimately works out because now they have no cap space for the foreseeable future, especially once Zion gets this presumably max rookie extension this summer. 
I have my concerns about the Pelicans defense, though. I know Herb Jones can basically guard one through five, but he can't guard one through five all at the same time on his own. (laughs) Hopefully these moves made uh, make Zion's camp happy and hopefully Zion is good to go for next season as New Orleans will certainly be looking to make a real playoff push at this point. For Portland, this return was much nicer than the other trade. They got back Josh Hart and some nice draft assets. And most important to Portland, they save a whopping $16 million because New Orleans absorbed Larry Nance's contract into that massive $17 million Stephen Adams trade exception. If Portland wants more cap space, they can straight up waive Josh Hart at the end of the season as his $13 million salary owed is non-guaranteed. Though, I'd fancy Josh Hart as a nice defensive fit alongside Damian Lillard, and I would expect him to remain on the roster. Last move for the Blazers here, in a three-team deal with the Jazz and Spurs, the Blazers send out Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Tomas Sadoransky for Joe Ingles, Elijah Hughes, and a future second rounder from Utah. Essentially trading Nikhil for a future second and a flyer on Elijah Hughes, who's caught fire a couple times from beyond the arc this season. After all these moves, the Blazers finally meet their goal of ducking the luxury tax and opening up about $20 million in cap space this summer, assuming they don't bring back Eric Bledsoe, his deal is only partially guaranteed, Joe Ingles, and one of of either Yusuf Nurkic or Josh Hart. Looking at Utah's side of this, they basically sent out two future seconds, Joe Ingles, Elijah Hughes, for Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Wancho Hernan Gomez from the Spurs. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find their defensive wing upgrade that they still desperately need. However, they have got a you know they've got a quality project to watch moving forward in Nikhil Alexander-Walker. And maybe he can grow into eventually replacing that Jordan Clarkson role in a couple of years. I'm going to circle back to the Spurs portion of this uh, in their own segment later on. But first, I want to talk about what actually might be my favorite deal of the trade deadline for all teams involved with Milwaukee, Sacramento, Detroit and the L.A. Clippers. Here's how it played out. So the Bucks received Serge Ibaka and multiple second round picks from the Kings and Pistons, as well as cash from the Clippers. The Kings received Dante DiVincenzo, Trey Lyles, and Josh Jackson. The Pistons received Marvin Bagley, and the Clippers received Rodney Hood and Semi Ojale. We'll start with the Bucks here. They were actively pursuing a Brooke Lopez replacement before the deadline, especially for the regular season. They just needed another shot blocker and semi-floor spacer to preserve Giannis for the playoffs. Getting back Ibaka and multiple okay second round picks was ultimately a worthwhile package for DiVincenzo, I think, who's due for a larger extension this summer. I imagine he'll be he'll go for like 12 to 13, up to 15 a year. The Sacramento Kings send out Marvin Bagley and a second round pick for Dante DiVincenzo here. I guess this is their Tyrese Halliburton replacement. (laughs) No, but seriously, I'm sure the Kings are happy to extend DiVincenzo as a combo guard this offseason. They certainly were not bringing back Marvin Bagley, so the opportunity cost here was virtually non-existent. The Detroit Pistons basically just acquired Marvin Bagley's bird rights for free. I don't think Trey Lyles or Josh Jackson hold any trade value around the league. Ultimately, they gave up a quality future second round pick for Marvin Bagley and for the luxury of being able to offload Josh Jackson's $5 million guaranteed for next season. 
Finally, the LA Clippers benefit more so on the nerdy CBA cap side of the trade here. It was not Sam Presti like I thought it would be. It was not Sam Presti that took on the Serge Ibaka salary dump. Instead, the Clippers were able to avoid sending out what few assets they have by sending Ibaka to a team that actually wanted him, like the Milwaukee Bucks. Rodney Hood and Semi Ojale will not get minutes for the Clippers. They're both on minimum contracts anyway. Without getting too much into the really nerdy math behind it, the $6 million Ibaka salary dump saved the Clippers approximately $25 million on their luxury tax bill, a worthwhile move for a team looking to compete next year. This move wasn't league-altering by any means, but it's just so rare to see a four-team trade like this, where all four teams clearly benefit from it in very, very different ways. Next up on the list, we've got the unexpected Kristaps Porzingis trade. There's basically no indication this move was in the works until it was reported as finalized. So the Dallas Mavericks send out Kristaps Porzingis and a future second round pick to Washington in exchange for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. Porzingis had basically missed half of his two and a half years with the Mavericks, and he's owed another $100 million over the next three seasons. Instead, the Mavs decide to break up that contract into two slightly more manageable but still negative contracts in Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. Both of them have greatly underperformed this season. Dinwiddie is hanging around 50% true shooting on the year, and Bertans' is the Latvian laser is only at 32% from three this year. Again, both of those numbers are substantially below what you would have expected from those two before the season, so there's reasonable optimism for improvement here. Not sure how much I love Dinwiddie as a shooter next to Luka Doncic, but I guess he's no worse than Jalen Brunson in that aspect. Uh, speaking of Jalen Brunson, he definitely does not like this move. <laughs> Brunson definitely doesn't like this move because it gives the Mavericks a failsafe if Brunson's market ends up being too hot this summer. It's been reported that Brunson's looking for that standard starting point guard contract in the neighborhood of 80 million over four years. Think Fred Van Vliet, Malcolm Brogdon as the recent examples of that. If other teams are willing to meet that price, then it allows Dallas to engage in more sign and trade possibilities to bolster up their wing rotation, because right now there's only about five teams projected to have significant cap space this summer, so it's more likely that Brunson would move on in a sign and trade. Um, from Washington's perspective, they just added a second star to build a winner around Bradley Beal. This seemed to be the only conceivable way for them to get off of Berton's remaining $65 million over the next four years. Also, apparently Spencer Dinwiddie was just not very popular among the Wizards locker room. That was kind of surprising to hear about. Overall, I think it's a high upside move for the Wizards, but also has the potential to be a quality deal for Dallas if Dinwiddie and Bertans can get even a little bit of progression towards the mean. It's still a strange deal overall though, right? Almost a lateral move for both teams involved. I'm assuming these talks basically didn't start until just hours before the trade deadline because again, there was absolutely zero reporting or hinting about a potential Mavs whiz deal here. Let's take a look at the Toronto Raptors here. Quiet trade deadline overall, but they were finally able to end the Goron Dragic saga in a deal that lets them avoid the luxury tax. 
So Toronto sends Goran Dragic and their lottery-protected 2022 first-round pick in exchange for Thaddeus Young, Drew Eubanks, and the Pistons' 2022 second-round pick. For Toronto, this is essentially moving somewhere between 12 to 15 spots down in the draft for Thaddeus Young and tax avoidance. The Raptors immediately waive Drew Eubanks, and the Spurs will presumably waive Goran Dragic as well at some point. Thad Young fills a need at center for the Raptors. He's a high IQ, defensive-minded, semi-small ball five, who was great for the Chicago Bulls last season, but just never really had the opportunity or desire to get integrated with the Spurs here. Pascal Siakam is playing a lot of center right now for the Raptors because Kem Birch is always injured and Precious Achua is shooting under 40% at the rim this season on non-dunk attempts. Depending on how this stint with Thaddeus Young goes, Toronto can also re-sign the 34-year-old with his bird rights this offseason if they so choose. Okay, I promise we get back here, so let's circle back to the San Antonio Spurs now. Most of their deals were smaller outside of the Derek White deal, which saw a return of Josh Richardson, Romeo Langford, and the Celtics 2022 first round pick. Another fun fact before we go through the slew of Spurs trades here, from 1990 to 2021, the Spurs made just six midseason trades across those 31 seasons. Uh, yeah, that's kind of insane. <laughs> but the most conservative front office in the NBA came out to play at the 2022 deadline, clocking out with four total transactions. So the Spurs ultimately sent out Derek White, Thaddeus Young, Bryn Forbes, Juancho Hernan Gomez, Drew Eubanks, and a second round pick. Got that? That's... Basically, Derek White, second round pick, and four players who weren't doing much at all to help them. In return, the Spurs received Goran Dragic, Tomas Sadoransky, both expiring contracts and will presumably not be with the team, Josh Richardson, Romeo Langford, the Raptors' 2022 first round pick, the Celtics' 2022 first round pick, and two undisclosed future second round picks. That's a pretty nice damn haul for a Spurs team that's finally committing to a rebuild here. On top of the assets they've stacked, the Spurs are projected to have the most cap space available this offseason of any team at $26 million if they renounce their rights to Lonnie Walker. However, if they also waive Zach Collins $7.3 million non-guarantee, they will have $34 million to work with. From there, they could look to throw max contract offers at restricted free agents like DeAndre Ayton or Miles Bridges if they so choose. We're just about done with the meaningful trades here, but another one worth touching on is Montrez Harrell to the Charlotte Hornets for Ish Smith, Vernon Carey, and a future second round pick. Montrez Harrell had been linked to Charlotte for basically two years now, and the Hornets finally get him for basically an unknown but probably not great second round pick. LaMelo Ball gets a real pick and roll partner here. That's going to be a ton of fun to watch even though I fully expect Mason Plumlee to remain in the starting lineup for now. Harrell's on an expiring deal, but I suspect he'll be relatively cheap to re-sign this offseason if the Hornets would like him back. Not a franchise-altering trade by any stretch of the imagination, but the Hornets' offense somehow gets even more exciting with a true rim-running big alongside LaMelo Ball. Harrell is shooting 77% at the rim this year and upwards towards 50% on quick little flips and floaters just outside the restricted area. We're going to finish things off in Boston here. As we just went over with the Spurs, the Celtics acquired Derek White from the Spurs for Josh Richardson, Romeo Langford, and the first round pick. 
I'm recording this just after Derek White's second game with Boston against the Atlanta Hawks, and he's been awesome. His fingerprints were all over those games defensively. Him and Marcus Smart are just a swarming duo on the perimeter. And White's got, I think it's he's got 29 points in his first two games here coming off the Celtics bench. Love this move for Boston. It's looked great so far. It's a substantial upgrade over Josh Richardson, and they've got Derek White under contract now for another three seasons after this one. He's on year one of his four-year $70 million extension that he originally signed with the Spurs. The Celtics also sent out Dennis Schroeder, Ennis Freedom, and Bruno Fernando to Houston for Daniel Tice, who's been really, really bad in Houston this year. But maybe that's just because he signed with them in free agency for the money and mailed it in. Who, who knows? He's definitely better than Ennis Freedom as a third string center, though, and can give you somewhat reliable backup minutes when Robert Williams inevitably misses time with some lingering injury. Last thing for Boston, kind of boring, but they avoid the luxury tax by sending an injured Bull Bull and PJ Dozier, along with a future second round pick and cash to Orlando. Boston received a future second round pick back in the deal, but it is heavily protected and unlikely to convey. So Boston gets out of the tax and Orlando gets another young center that they won't do anything with. <laughs> That's going to do it here. Those were all of the meaningful trades that went down before the 2022 trade deadline. I wanted to kind of sit on my thoughts here for a couple days before just jumping on and spewing nonsense before the full details and some of these trades were revealed. So apologies for the wait there, but thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you all soon. Until then.